This program is brought to you with support from the U.S. EPA. We're here to present the EFC Network Podcast. The Environmental Finance Center Network is a partnership of 12 centers serving 10 EPA regions. The EFCN provides training and technical assistance to small water and wastewater systems. This podcast series has been designed to help system personnel improve technical, managerial, and financial capacity of the utilities and communities they serve. Hello, and welcome to the Great Lakes Environmental Finance Center podcast. The Great Lakes Environmental Center is one of 12 environmental finance centers that serve small water and wastewater systems, providing training and technical assistance for many areas, but especially focusing in infrastructure issues, including system financing and asset management. Today, we're going to be talking to a very special guest who is actually there at ground zero for both of the most publicized lead contamination events in recent history. She was there for both the Flint, Michigan lead contamination crisis and the earlier Washington, D.C. lead contamination crisis of 2000. Elin Warren Batonzo is our guest today. I want to take a couple minutes here to tell you a little bit more about Elin's experience before we bring her in. Elin has over 20 years of experience working on drinking water science, engineering, and policy, and has worked with a variety of organizations, including the US EPA, where she's contributed to the National Safe Drinking Water Act regulations. She's also worked with the Washington Suburban Sanitary Commission, where she led a master water system planning and hydraulic modeling effort. And she's worked for the Northeast Midwest Institute as the, as the lead in safe drinking water research and policy. She currently serves on the National Drinking Water Advisory Council. Elin holds a Master of Science in Environmental Engineering and a Water Quality Management Certificate from Virginia Tech. She also has a Bachelor of Science in Environmental Science and a Bachelor of Fine Arts in Piano Performance, very well-rounded, from Carnegie Mellon University. Elin is a professional engineer registered in Michigan, Maryland, and Virginia, and a certified water system operator in both Maryland and Michigan. Elin is the founder of Safe Water Engineering. That is a consulting firm that she founded and it's located in Detroit, Michigan. As a consultant, she's always working to improve access to drinking water through engineering and policy consulting. Her volunteer efforts also focused on helping disadvantaged communities and those with, an, with environmental justice needs. In both her capacity as a consultant and frequent volunteer, her work focuses on raising awareness of lead in drinking water, assisting water utilities with Safe Drinking Water Act compliance. She's also an expert in helping communities comply with the Michigan Revised Lead and Copper Rule, particularly in helping systems develop lead service line replacement programs. And these are the topics that we're going to be focusing on today. Hello and welcome, Elin. Thank you for taking the time to meet with us today. Thank you for having me here today. Let's start here. Could you uh, please tell us a little bit about your background, uh, particularly those experiences that that led to your initially getting into drinking water? Well, I was always interested in environmental work, and so I got my undergraduate degree in environmental science but I didn't find drinking water until I was already working at the US Environmental Protection Agency, and I was trying to decide where to focus my career. I found drinking water, and I was drawn to the connections between the natural environment and water, 
our ability to treat it through engineering systems, and the immediate relevance to public health. So that's really what drew me in and got me committed to working on drinking water. I got my master's degree while I was working in at the EPA in the Office of Groundwater and Drinking Water. I was working on writing the stage two disinfection byproducts rule, and I worked on the total coliform rule revisions. And I always had a focus there on distribution system water quality. I also spent some time as the National Tribal Drinking Water Coordinator, where we where I was addressing the unique funding implementation and operational challenges of our small tribal water systems. I also had the opportunity to work for the Washington Suburban Sanitary Commission, a very large water utility. And then I was working for a think tank, the Northeast Midwest Institute, when the Flint water crisis happened. And after that, I was able to start my own consulting firm when I saw the need for better technical assistance around lead and water and Safe Drinking Water Act compliance in general. So that's what I've been able to do with my own firm once I launched it in 2017. Well, wow, that, that is quite a, a series of experiences. And that uh, helps to kind of clarify how you got to where you are uh, mm -hmm. doing what you're doing now. Uh, with your permission, I'd like to kind of jump right into that hot button issue uh, that may be on the minds of a lot of people listening as we speak. Our listeners would probably like to hear a little more about Flint, what was going on behind the scenes and, and how that situation developed. Yeah, well, I can't talk about Flint without talking about Washington, D.C., because that's where my experience with lead and water started. I was working for the EPA when the D.C. lead crisis hit the headlines in 2004. Lead levels in Washington, D.C. spiked after they changed their secondary disinfectant from chlorine to chloramines back in 2000. But it didn't become widely known until it was published in the Washington Post in January of 2004. So when I was working there at EPA, the first thing my boss asked me to do was to research whether there was any evidence that children have ever been poisoned by lead in their drinking water. So when I took on that assignment, the documentation I found at that time was minimal. So despite the initial uproar in Washington, D.C., everything calmed down when the Centers for Disease Control published a study in April of 2004 that said that there was no evidence that children were being harmed. And so the whole story slipped out of the news media and out of most people's minds. However, in 2010, the CDC published a correction. They stated that thousands of records were excluded from that initial analysis. And when they included those records, there is a significant relationship between children with elevated blood lead levels and lead service lines in Washington, DC. So there actually was significant harm to the children drinking the water during that DC lead crisis. But then I moved positions a few times over that timeline, which I kind of just described a little bit. I had moved back home to Michigan uh, and I moved back home in 2012. So I was living here in Michigan in April of 2014 when I learned that Flint was changing its source water from Lake Huron to the Flint River. And that made me think right away of the DC crisis, that change in water quality. And so I followed the news closely because I was concerned that something might not go right there. So as I was following the news media, I saw in the summer of 2015 that my colleagues at Virginia Tech and EPA had measured very high lead in the water in Flint. The state of Michigan kept dismissing their water sampling results. 
And based on my DC experience, I knew that the only thing that would change the conversation and the response to the water quality in Flint would be evidence that there were public health impacts. The Michigan Department of Health and Human Services was not releasing the available health data for Flint that was necessary to do this. But then I realized that a close friend of mine from high school was a pediatrician in a Flint hospital. So I explained to her how the water system had changed its source water in Flint, and I asked her if she could study the blood lead level data that had been collected at her hospital. So that was Dr. Mona Hanna Atisha. She got to work immediately, and in September of 2015, she released her preliminary study results at a press conference that clearly showed that children's blood lead levels increased after the water switch in 2014. As a result of our work, by October 2015, the governor switched the water source back to Lake Huron, and in January of 2016, President Obama declared a federal state of emergency in Flint. In March 2017, a legal settlement with the state of Michigan agreed to replace all of the lead and galvanized service lines in the city of Flint. Now it's February of 2023, and they still haven't replaced all of the lead lines yet. So there's still ongoing water quality challenges in Flint. We've made a lot of progress, but it's the Flint water crisis is not over. Wow. Uh, two, two things that you said uh, really st struck me. Uh, the first was that the the data from the DC event really didn't emerge till 10 years later, right? right. Uh, 2010, when those updated results came out. And then the crisis in Flint, Michigan, that you were intimately involved in, it really hinged on one person, yourself, kind of anticipating that there could be problems there and, and really being on top of it. It makes me wonder how many contamination events have gotten past uh, authorities and people's awareness just because they didn't have someone like you that was that was looking out for these things. How has the Flint crisis impacted the regulatory framework? Can I go back and just uh, respond a little bit to those last points that you made there? Of course. Okay. Um, so lead in water can create really challenging scenarios because the federal lead and copper rule is a very weak regulation. We It doesn't sample to measure the highest risk uh, lead in water. And so it's really easy to miss these contamination events, especially because you can't see, taste, or smell lead in drinking water. So we've had a lot of uh, scenarios across the country where we've had to change either source water or a change in treatment that could easily be releasing these lead into the water. And so you are raising a very good point. If you're not looking for it, you're probably not going to find it. It's a real challenge in our water quality. Thank you for that. And and I had uh, begun to ask you uh, uh, how, how the Flint crisis impacted regulations, the regulatory framework. Yeah, so I'll answer that and focus on what we've been doing in the state of Michigan. Uh, the Michigan Department of Environmental Quality, as they were called back in 2018, uh, they revised the Michigan lead and copper rule in response to the Flint water crisis. 
So now in Michigan, we currently have the most protective lead and copper rule in the country. It's, it's not perfect, but we're doing a lot more to uh, measure lead in water and address it more proactively than we do in the federal rule. So I was part of a stakeholder group that worked with the Michigan DEQ up through the revision that they issued in 2018. So I'll go through a few of the requirements that we have now in Michigan. We have a requirement to do service line inventories. Water systems have to know what their service lines are made of. They have to identify their lead service lines and they're not they're they're galvanized as well and they're non-lead service lines. And they have until 2025 to do a complete inventory. We have a ban on partial lead service line replacements in Michigan and that means that if a water utility is replacing a lead service line, they have to replace the entire thing at once. They can't uh, replace just the public side or just the private side and leave some of the lead in place. They need to take it all out at once and they can't charge the individual resident for the replacement at their property. There's a proactive requirement to replace all lead service lines within 20 years. They're all need to be out by 2041. And so there's currently no proactive lead service line replacement requirement in the federal rule. We changed our sampling requirements in Michigan. Uh, so under the federal rule, water systems take half of their uh, compliant samples at sites with lead service lines if they have lead service lines. Now in Michigan, if a water system has lead service lines, they have to take all of their compliant samples at those lead service line sites. And then they have to take both the first liter out of the tap and the fifth liter. And that fifth liter sample is more likely to capture water from the lead service lines. We have to notify residents if they have a lead service line or an unknown service line at their home. So these are all new requirements in Michigan. The path to revision of the EPA has been a lot bumpier than uh, the Michigan process. After the DC lead crisis, the EPA committed to revising the federal lead and copper rule. They committed to short-term revisions and long-term revisions. They issued those short-term revisions in 2007, and then they issued their lead and copper rule revisions, their long-term revisions, and they were finalized in 2021. Um, but then there's been a little bit of back and forth there. The lead and copper rule revisions were criticized as not protective enough. In some cases, the provisions actually reduced public health protection, like the lead service line replacement requirement in that federal revision. So EPA has committed to issuing a new regulation. So now they're going after the lead and copper rule improvements. And that is uh, scheduled to come out before the lead and copper rule revisions are fully in effect in October of 2024. So that Michigan lead and copper rule that we have now might serve as a little bit of a preview of what we might see in the lead and copper rule improvements, uh, but we don't know yet what's going to come out in that new regulation. I see, and uh, I, I learned something completely new uh, as you were just speaking, I didn't realize that the fifth liter uh, could have a greater chance of having lead. I was always under the impression that it was always first draw, uh, but I've learned something new there. Uh, mm -hmm. Do you think that the uh, the Michigan uh, rules uh, are going to influence the national uh, rules in some way? 
Well, we definitely have data now from Michigan, and so EPA likes to consider uh, real data and uh, research as they're issuing uh, regulations to make sure that they are more protective than we what we currently have. And so we have several years now. 2019 was the first year of new sampling data under the Michigan lead and copper rule. So I believe EPA is considering that new fifth liter data uh, to see if how to use that in the lead and copper rule improvements. The lead and copper rule revisions does include fifth liter sampling, but they drop the first liter sampling at lead service line sites. So there's there's a lot of potential complexity going on um, in the different rules that are coming up. Thank you for explaining that. Uh, I'd like to shift focus a little bit uh, to some practical things that systems might need to know about or do uh, in regard to the revised lead and copper rule or, or just about lead contamination in general. Mm -hmm. Well, here, I want to put up some slides and share some information that I think could be helpful to the water utilities who are listening on, in on this podcast. So first, I like to talk uh, first and foremost of why do we care about lead? Well, lead is a potent irreversible neurotoxin with no safe level of exposure. It has lifelong multi-generational impacts. It has no useful purpose in the body. There's no level of lead in the blood that is safe. And the lead action level that we have in the lead and copper rule, that 15 parts per billion, that is not a public health protection level. That is a level EPA selected that's an indicator of corrosion control effectiveness. If your 90th percentile of lead results is above 15 parts per billion, it means corrosion is out of control. We need some corrosion control to bring it down but the safe level of lead in water is zero. That's the maximum contaminant level goal for lead in water, the level at which there's no health effects. So that's the level that we should be shooting for in our water utilities. And so when we talk about blood lead levels, we do standard testing um, in many communities for children between the ages of one or and two. Those are our toddlers who are crawling around, putting their fingers in their mouth. And this is because this is when they're most vulnerable to lead paint exposure. Our children that are most vulnerable to lead in water, we don't test them at all for their lead exposure. These are infants, uh, especially formula-fed infants between zero and six, and when especially when their formula is being mixed with tap water. This, this is because all of their nutrition is coming from the water. And if that water is lead contaminated, potentially coming from a lead service line, every ounce of nutrition that goes into that baby's mouth could be contaminated with lead. But again, we don't ever test uh, the infants for lead exposure. Pregnant women are also extremely vulnerable to lead in their drinking water. And then as we consider the multiple exposure pathways to lead, uh, water, we must drink water to survive. So if we're living in a home with a lot of lead in the plumbing and corrosive water, that's a lifelong exposure risk to lead. And there's lifelong health effects from lead in the water. So these are all real reasons why addressing lead in water is extremely critical. And the lead that's released into a home can really be uh, dependent on how water is used in an individual home. 
the higher the water use, the more the water is flowing through the household plumbing, um, the, the less lead will be uh, coming into each individual glass because um, of increased corrosion control, just less time for that lead in the plumbing to be sitting in contact with water. So these are all reasons to be really paying attention to what is happening with the lead in the water. The lead and copper rule is completely different from all the rest of our drinking water regulations. Most of the time, the contaminants are in our source water and we can remove them at the water treatment plant. But the source water very rarely has lead contamination. The lead comes from lead service lines and lead in household plumbing. We do some of our compliance sampling in the distribution system. We do that for disinfection byproducts and microorganisms, but we do all of our lead and copper rule compliance sampling in homes because it's that smaller uh, uh, size plumbing, the service lines and the household plumbing that has the greatest lead content and it's where that lead is coming into the drinking water. So kind of talking specifically about where lead and water comes from, um, as I said before, typically when the water is traveling through our large diameter water mains, typically does not have lead in it. It's when it passes through service lines, which can be made of lead, uh, like solid lead pipes from the water main to the home, but also galvanized, uh, galvanized steel service lines can have a large uh, lead content in them that uh, goes into the water. Also, galvanized after lead, uh, that galvanized pipe can soak up that lead like a sponge and then re-release it over time. So galvanized that's either in the service line or in the home can be a major risk of lead exposure in the water. Then we also have lead in fittings and fixtures uh, in homes and lead solder. And lead pipes and lead solder were banned in 1986. And lead in our fittings and fixtures, we have this definition of lead-free in our drinking water plumbing. That was revised in 2014. Prior to 2014, uh, plumbing materials could be marked lead-free and have up to 8% lead by weight. That's a lot of lead in the plumbing. That was revised in 2014 to 0.25% lead. So there's still uh, lead in lead-free plumbing, but it's a lot smaller than it used to be. So while that's an improvement, um, there's still uh, can be significant lead in brand new lead-free plumbing. So I think that's kind of my overview there of lead and water, uh, our need to know information. Uh, thank you for that. And uh, it kind of answered my uh, uh, next uh, question I was thinking of is, uh, which is, uh, is there still a risk for uh, lead-based plumbing materials even today, even after these regulations have been put in place? Is, is it possible, as to possible for us to make a wrong decision uh, for example, ob obtaining some kind of plumbing material from another country or something and getting a higher uh, amount of lead than, than we're supposed to have for uh, drinking water? 
It's actually possible to buy the wrong material in the United States today because oh. it's only materials that are intended for drinking water use that have to meet this standard, the lead-free standard. So like hose bibs, um, valves, like toilet valves, uh, plumbing materials that were not intended for a drinking water application aren't required to meet NSF 61. That's the standard for lead and plumbing. So it's possible to make a mistake and get some really high lead materials in your drinking water system. And they can be compatible with uh, your drinking water plumbing in your home. Um, and also even the lead-free plumbing materials, brand new lead-free that meet, NSF 61, that 2014 lead-free standard, uh, studies have shown that even with the lower 0.25% lead, they can continue to release lead at levels of concern. You know, as I said before, zero is a safe level of lead in water, and uh, brand new faucets can still be leaching uh, lead um, above that. Yes, yeah, so we're measuring uh, lead contamination and milligrams per liter, right? And we're talking percent, which is a percent is 10,000 milligrams per liter. That's a lot of lead. Yeah. Uh, uh, you've kind of already addressed this, uh, but uh, are there any uh, anything else you'd like to add about the current state of the lead and copper rule revisions? Uh, where are we in that process? And any big uh, upcoming changes that small systems should know about? Well, yeah, so we do have the lead and copper rule revisions are, one can argue, in sort of in effect right now um, because that the rule was finalized. Um, we do anticipate changes, but the first big piece of that is the inventory requirement. So EPA is expecting water utilities across the country to be working on their inventories right now. So our Michigan water utilities have had a little bit of a um, opportunity to get ahead of the game, but everybody needs to be working on their inventories right now. Um, some, and so EPA has issued guidance on completing those inventories. Uh, other things to think about and anticipate um, that are either in the lead and copper rule revisions or are likely to be in the future rule. Right now, um, the lead and copper rule revisions will have a change to uh, if a water system has lead service lines, all the compliance samples would be taken at lead service line sites, just like that, the Michigan rule. And uh, I think I mentioned earlier, uh, switch to fifth liter samples. Um, I've done some analysis of Michigan compliance data. I actually have an article that was published in Water Science, the AWWA uh, uh, peer-reviewed journal. And we were able to analyze the fifth liter data. And the results are that we had uh, an increase in lead action level exceedances. Those fifth liter samples are higher than first liter samples. Uh, and do a better job of representing the lead service line uh, in you know, the contribution of lead from a lead service line in the water. Because that first liter is generally just sitting in contact with the faucet and the proximate plumbing, those lower magnitude lead sources. Um, so I'm expecting to see in the lead and copper rule improvements um, 
some continued version of lead service line sampling in the federal rule. The lead and copper rule revisions have added a trigger level um, in addition to the action level. And that really increases the complexity of the rule. Um, but that means that if EPA keeps that, that water systems will have to take additional action if their lead 90th percentile comes in at 10 parts per billion. And so uh, that's going to be a lot of fun and excitement if that's maintained in the in the new rule from EPA, because then there's one set of actions that you have to take at 10 parts per billion and then another set of actions at 15. I'm hopeful that they simplify this because what we just need is a simple rule that prioritizes public health protection and you know removes the sources of lead from our water systems. Another big thing that is in the lead and copper rule revisions that I hope uh, stays for the lead and copper rule improvements is a requirement to provide a six month supply of certified filters anytime there's a lead service line replacement or work on a lead service line that disconnects that service line and then reconnects it. Filters are a very effective way of reducing lead in the water when they're certified lead reducing filters. Um, and they can, they, the majority of the data that we have show that they bring lead levels to non-detect or extremely low. And so they are a great intervention when working with lead service lines and higher risk activities that will release that lead into the water. Well, that sounds like those the the lead filter installation sounds like really a great point for uh, systems to take into consideration, even if there's not a regulation, right? Uh, because they could protect people in the homes that they're working on lead service lines uh, yeah, for that like, time. Right. Like replacing meters, doing repairs. If there's a lead service line, anytime that you're you know touching the plumbing and shaking it, you can release that lead into the water. So especially when there's uh, young children in the home um, that might be drinking the water, making sure that they have a filter. And sometimes access to bottled water is um, advisable as well. For, uh, for, for infants who are on formula, the easiest way to remove that risk is either to use bottled water to mix formula or use the um, the premixed formula so that you're not um, having that risk of lead in the water and mixing formula for babies. It, they're just the highest risk group of all. It, their brains are developing and the more we can do to eliminate the risk of lead in their bodies, uh, that's the most vulnerable time for development. Well, that's excellent advice uh, for utilities to disseminate that information and, and help people to protect themselves. I noticed uh, when I, I thought of something uh, when you were describing the lower uh, trigger levels, mm -hmm. I was just thinking about Flint, Michigan and DC and other places that have had lead outbreaks prior to changing the water source where they had a different water quality, they were actually meeting all of the requirements of the lead and copper rule, correct? Right. So under the federal lead and copper rule that's you know in place right now and all water systems are measuring compliance with, they only have to uh, sample the first liter of water out of the tap after a minimum of six hours with no water use in the home. 
and only half of their samples have to be from sites with lead service lines. And so that's really, um, it, it really depresses the, the levels of lead that you are detecting system-wide because um, not getting a, a whole set of high-risk sample sites and not capturing the highest risk water. Um, in Michigan, uh, when we switched from first liter only to first and fifth liter sampling, uh, a lot of the systems with lead service lines used to get their 90th percentile around three or four parts per billion. And now with the first and fifth liter samples, um, the systems that have a lot of lead service lines are much more frequently hovering around 10 parts per billion and having lead action level exceedances. Wow, uh, that's very insightful. Now, you had mentioned one of the steps that we really should be uh, in the progress of instituting right now is developing our lead service line inventories. Uh, what kind of strategies have you seen being used in Michigan to develop these lead service line inventories? Yeah, so inventories are critical to planning an effective lead service line replacement program. And unfortunately, we've had a lot of challenges in the water industry maintaining good records about service line materials. And so kind of the first, the first step is to make sure you have a good record keeping system. Uh, a lot of times records historically have been kept on uh, paper cards and because that's the technology we've had in place when they were originally installed, but you know, uh, paper records, uh, a lot of things can happen to them. So making sure first off that we have a good way to store the records and great um, standard operating procedures for updating those records anytime anybody uh, excavates a service line or does anything to update the records there, making sure there's a, a trail of record changes and a way to always document changes over time. So that's kind of the starting point to a good inventory. Uh, the most conclusive uh, technique we have for identifying a service line is excavating that service line and observing the material. We have other strategies, some water utilities have tried using water sampling. In many cases, it's inconclusive to know what is in the ground. Unfortunately, right now, the best thing we have is to look at it. So um, in Michigan, for our service line inventories, uh, the guidance is to uh, excavate and check, do a four-point check on the service line. So that's checking where the service line hits the water main at the corporation stop to see what the material is there, because uh, often uh, lead goosenecks have been used in the past, or it might be lead, could be galvanized, could be copper or plastic, depending on what the development is. So um, first check is at the corporation stop, both sides of the curb stop, you know, the water shutoff in the yard that's generally at the property line, um, because a lot of water utilities have done work on the public side of the service line and not the private side. So there can often be different materials on the water main side or the building side of a service line. And then inside the house can also uh, be a different material because maybe the homeowner switched something out and never notified the water utility. Uh, so that four point check is the 
one of the best ways we have to have conclusive information about the service line material. And so kind of the way I think about it and to kind of minimize disruption is when you can get data from inside the house, you know, go there first. If it's lead inside the house, you know it's lead. You don't have to excavate anything more. Um, but if it's not lead and it's a housing of a certain age, more investigation is necessary. So then in this case, uh, looking at the city development, the water utility development, how materials have been used over time. So there's the federal ban on lead service lines in 1986. And then some of our plumbing codes banned lead service lines before that um, in the 70s, but whether whether or when a state or a city adopted those plumbing codes would have a local impact on when that official ban came into place. But then there are water utilities that have uh, updated their procedures well before that. A lot of the water utilities I worked with in Michigan uh, stopped using lead service lines um, so around the 1950s. And some of them even made that choice back in the 1920s. So it's really important to check the historical codes, talk with folks that have been in the water department for a long time, or you know, call up your retired friends to uh, see what they remember about installation uh, in the community, because it can be highly individual. There are some communities that never use lead service lines at all, even when they are very old communities. So doing a deep dive into those records is really important. And then moving forward, making sure every investigation is uh, well-documented, um, hopefully with photos. Photos are really great um, in our, now that we've got electronic data systems, databases, and even the GIS databases using field tablets are really um, efficient ways to collect data and associate them with a the property uh, for record keeping. Well, wow, that is great information. I, I love the four-point inspection technique. And I was I was about you answered this question. I was about to ask you about what kind what year range we should be looking at when we're looking for homes that may be using lead pipes of some type. And I was surprised to hear you mention as recent as the 80s, uh there there could have been legally installed pipes that that could have a dangerous content of lead. But that's also good advice about looking at the the city codes and uh, and what it was likely to have been installed installed or not installed. So right. thank and you for EPA, that. Yeah, sorry. EPA mm -hmm. does have a guidance manual on uh, completing inventories, and they have a spreadsheet template that you can use for uh, record keeping as you fill that in for the service lines. Uh, that's a that's a great uh, recommendation. So the EPA uh, inventory, you can just download the spreadsheet. And you you mentioned also getting photographic evidence of those four point inspections too. I, mm -hmm. That's great advice for water systems to follow. Uh, let me move on to a question about the actual service line replacement. Uh, what strategies have you been using or seen used to develop an actual lead service line replacement program and Maybe you could talk a little bit about what types of challenges water systems have had with those. 
Yeah, so one thing that I hear a lot from water utilities is concerns about getting access to homes. And it's not something that water utilities typically do. It's uh, a new thing, um, getting into homes to complete the lead service line replacement all the way to the inside of the house. And so um, getting out early, doing customer outreach and education is really important. So working with the community to develop lead service line replacement programs to get buy-in and support so that uh, communities don't feel surprised. So residents are, you know, aren't like, why, why are these people showing up at my door and saying they need to get in my house? The earlier you get the entire community involved and kind of participating, um, it'll be easier. So having a really robust communication program and this can also get a little bit tricky. Sometimes um, the way we've talked about lead and water in the past is really, and especially over the past few years since Flint, I've heard a lot of water utilities say, oh, well, we aren't Flint. We, we don't have a problem with the lead in the water. But these are also communities that have lead service lines that have an elevated risk of lead in the water. So doing that pivot from we don't have a problem to we need to get into your house to get the lead service line out, that can be a really jarring contrast for residents. So um, really working on that public outreach, educating the community, saying, you know, letting them know we want to get these lead service lines out. They are a risk. Um, the sooner we get them out, the sooner we don't have to worry about that extra lead in your water. Um, so I can't emphasize enough the importance of community involvement, good education, transparent data, telling residents that they either, you know that they have a lead service line or they might have a lead service line. Um, residents need to know that so they can protect themselves and then be ready for the replacement program when the program comes. Again, the record keeping and quality control is important um, to make sure that you're checking the service lines. What I find I think is kind of the most difficult with a lead service line replacement program is kind of that gray area when you're looking at dates when a community did install lead service lines and we know that there's the ban after 1986, we can kind of take those properties off the list, but there's usually at least a decade in the middle where, you know, anything could happen. <laughs> there could be plumbers still out there not aware of code changes or something or what, you know, the local ordinances. And so you can have like a period of time where it really could be non-lead or lead. Uh, and those are the ones I think are the most important to uh, investigate to make sure you're getting all the lead out in your lead service line replacement program. So in this way, in planning that program, like knowing what kind of a neighborhood you're in and making sure you have a plan for every service line. Do, do I have a reason to know that this is non-lead and take it off the table? Make sure that you've got a plan for addressing each one because it's going to be the least expensive when you're just going down the street, knocking out every service line as you go, um, rather than jumping around and kind of doing a haphazard plan because that's just going to keep driving the cost up and it's going to drive up confusion for residents because they don't know what's happening and then it's going to make it harder to get them to give access to the home when you are actually going to an individual's house. So making sure that 
when you launch the lead service line replacement program, you have a plan for every service and a strategy for making sure that you're identifying as lead or not lead, you're going to have a much smoother path forward in implementing your program and funding it too. That's excellent advice. So uh, a clear plan to uh, establish the criteria for those houses that you know for sure you can write off and uh, a documented justification uh, for why a home is or is not uh, a potential to have lead. And then investigation. What really struck me is uh, when you said uh, all of a sudden you go to the homeowner and you let them know, hey, we need to get into your plumbing in your house and remove the lead service line. I can imagine that could be quite a shock to the residents if you didn't have some kind of a, a systematic plan that you communicated over a long period of time. Right. Yeah. And especially if that's the first time they're learning that they have a lead service line. So. I want to take a, a step back uh, to your larger mission here. Mm -hmm. And uh, you have a personal mission that uh, seems to include environmental justice for underserved com uh, communities. Would mm -hmm. you say that's accurate? Uh, could you describe from your own perspective, uh, how do you view environmental justice and how do you view your role in that? Well, so lead service lines, uh, tend to be concentrated in older cities where we have a larger population of low-income, majority Black, majority Brown communities. And so are these uh, majority Black and Brown communities are disproportionately impacted by lead in their water. They have a larger number of lead service lines. They're in older housing that has multiple lead risks, including lead-based paint. And they're, they tend to be lower income families. And so historically, we've been asking them to pay for their own, the cost of their own lead service line replacement, and it's usually not affordable. And so there's been a disproportionate impact of partial lead service line replacements uh, in these communities as well, where a water utility will replace the public side of a lead service line, but leave the private side in service um, because that resident can't, couldn't afford at the time that lead service line replacement. Partial lead service line replacements are a really expensive way of increasing the risk of lead exposure in a home because it, you know, cuts up that lead service line. It shakes it up. It releases lead in. There's actual shards of lead that can be released into the water from the slicing of the lead service line. And then if you put in a, a copper service line, then you can create a galvanic connection that actually increases um, the corrosion of the lead pipe. So uh, EPA has documented how partial lead service line replacements can increase the amount of lead uh, over the short term and does not decrease the lead over the long term. So we need to get full lead service lines out and uh, so working with these communities that are disproportionately impacted with a higher number of lead service lines, a higher, um, uh, more sources of lead exposure, uh, disparate health uh, con conditions in the first place due to uh, lower incomes than the community as a whole, 
these are all reasons why uh, it's extremely important to me to work carefully with these communities to make sure that programs are designed to reach every resident, especially those with um, uh, higher health risks and greater risk of having a lit service line to make sure that they can get their lit service lines out so they can have safe water so they can thrive and grow and uh, be healthy, because uh, that's what we all want. That's why I went into the water industry, because we need water to live and we all need healthy water. I like the way you explain that, that it uh, makes it very clear uh, to me uh, how you're actually uh, working toward and achieving this environmental justice. And uh, also it's, it's kind of shocking how uh, this you know, these half-hearted efforts, you might say, or partial replacements can actually do more harm than good. Mm -hmm. uh, we're coming down uh, to uh, nearing the end of our time together here. Uh, I would like to uh, bring our senior engineer, uh, John Sullivan, who's also a professional engineer, and, and uh, he's, a, he's our senior engineer at the Great Lakes Environmental Infrastructure Center. And uh, Get your perspective, John, on uh, on what you've been hearing here and how it fits in to your role in, in your mission. Uh, this has been a powerful interview. Thank you so much, Elin, for sharing such information. It's uh, it's made me, as a professional engineer, much more aware of the concerns we have with lead out there drinking water systems and Greg, we have to figure out a way to get this interview done or promoted nationally. This is powerful information that uh, we haven't heard before. I haven't heard before. And I uh, thank you so much for being available and sharing, Elon. Now that, that echoes my sentiments exactly. Elon, I want to give you the, the floor here. Uh, any final thoughts uh, that uh, you'd like to share as we're about uh, ready to wrap up here? Anything we missed? Uh, uh, maybe you could also share how how folks can uh, contact you if they want to access additional resources or engage you uh, further in their community or in their programs. Okay. You have the floor. Great. Thank you. Well, first, I figured I would just share... Uh, lead service line since we haven't looked at one yet during this presentation. This is a lead pipe that um, I got out of the ground in Detroit. And this is the curb stop. Um, so I have the, the brass and the lead here. And uh, as the uh, the construction crews will tell you, always wear gloves uh, when you're uh, dealing with a lead pipe because that lead just comes right off on your fingers and it is a hazardous substance here but you can see the white joint there it looks kind of like a snake that swallowed an egg that's kind of the telltale sign of your lead pipe it's e easily scratched with a screwdriver or a coin it is not magnetic so if you hold a magnet it will not cling to the pipe and um it's hard to show on these uh uh video cameras but Sometimes you can kind of get a little view of that corrosion control coating that you can get on the inside of the pipe. Um, if you are getting those pipes from a system that uses a corrosion inhibitor or um, 
uh, technique that uh, creates that scale on the inside of the pipe. So just that when you're doing that corrosion control treatment, it reduces the solubility of the lead, but it doesn't prevent it. So there's that risk when there's lead present, uh, there's always that risk of lead in the water. So I do have a lot of resources on my webpage. It's uh, www.safewaterengineering.com. I keep a blog and I also have a um, page that has you know a lot of resources that I have developed um, through my work, including that paper that I mentioned about the Michigan um, the Michigan Revised Lead and Copper Rule compliance sampling data. And if you have questions, you can uh, email me at elin, E-L-I-N, at safewaterengineering.com. And um, I'm really happy that I was able to be here today to talk about this issue that I'm very passionate about. Elin, we want to thank you for taking the time to be with us today. Uh, as John uh, emphasized, it was very informative. We both learned a lot of new things today ourselves. And we want to thank all, all our listeners for joining us today as well. Uh, once again, uh, my name is Greg Pearson. I'm the uh, Water and Wastewater Systems Trainer at the Great Lakes Environmental Infrastructure Center. And uh, we also had John Sullivan, who's a professional engineer and our, our senior research engineer at the center. And we're one of 12 centers uh, that focus on environmental finance issues. And just to reiterate, we've been talking with Elon Batonso. Uh, who is a consultant and has been sharing with us some tips for complying with the revised lead and copper rule. Particularly, we talked today about uh, lead service line inventories and replacement strategies, and really just the importance of preventing lead contamination in our, in our drinking water systems. If you would like uh, more information about future training events or to request technical assistance, you can go to efcnetwork.org. You're going to find a, a host of no-cost resources that are designed to help small, rural, and tribal water and wastewater systems. And if you're located in Region 5, which means the states of Michigan, Wisconsin, Minnesota, Illinois, Indiana, or Ohio, you may wish to con contact, contact us here directly at your local center, which is the Great Lakes Environmental Infrastructure Center, at uh, www.gleic.org. Thank you again, Elon, for, for uh, sharing with us today. And thank you to all who have joined us today. Thank you to all our listeners for tuning into this episode of the EFC Network Podcast, brought to you with support from the U.S. EPA. Be sure to stay tuned for future EFC Network podcast episodes.